upset me. From Studio P, Sausalito, home of the hit, it's time for... Suckatash. The number one comedy podcast about comedy... Podcast. And here's your host, internationally recognized comedy podcast commentator, Mark Hershon. Yes, once again, it's me, your Master of Ceremonies, Mark Hershon. Welcome to Epi 33 of Suckatash, the comedy podcast podcast where I normally play host to about a dozen clips from comedy podcasts from around the interwebs. Today's installment of Suckatash is going to be virtually clipless, however, as I'm interviewing a pretty fascinating guy. John Anilio is a podcaster, one half of the team that puts up functional nerds every week, but he's also better known for his music, a cool blend of sci-fi and comedic songs that have gotten quite a bit of play in the nerd community. Do, do the nerds have a community? I think so. I, I live there anyway. Before we get to Mr. Anilio, however, I've got a short teaser from an interview I'll be playing in a couple of weeks with a comedian and buddy of mine named Sammy Wegent. Sammy is the brains behind a comedy web series that's currently dropping over six episodes on YouTube called Everybody's a Comedian. This week sees Epi 4 of that series online, and if you take a look back a couple of episodes to Epi 2, you'll see yours truly in a role I feel I was born to play, a somewhat sleazy commercial director. Sammy Weijin is a stand-up comic. He's an actor and an improv comedian whom I've had the pleasure of working with as an improv teacher for a couple of years when we ran classes here in San Francisco. And we've also performed once as an improv duo under the name Sons of Misery. Here's Sammy with a verbal peek at what his web series, Everybody's a Comedian, is all about. Well, Everybody's a Comedian is just a, um, it's a web series that sadly is a digital mirror of my life. Uh, it's just about a struggling comedian slash actor slash comedy and acting teacher slash single man in this grand city of San Francisco, California. But uh, yeah, basically, you know, I've always loved shows that were in the ilk of the Seinfelds and the Larry Sanders shows, like something that's a little little bit of a meta, self-referential entertainment. Not a spoof, but, you know, holds, holds a mirror up to the, the world of being in entertainment. And the thing about it that I liked, that I personally also don't like, is that there's, a, there's no, not really many shows, even if they're just little web series, that show what it means to be paying your dues. Like, a lot of times when we see these shows... They're about someone that we've known about for a long time, which obviously that's that's really interesting and, and, and maybe to most people is much more fascinating to, to see Seinfeld in his element or Larry David in his element. But being someone who's been doing this for a long time and has a lot of weird experiences that a lot of people have always thought were, <laughs> for better or for worse, sometimes better than the material they've written, I just thought that uh, you know it'd be fun to kind of explore the world of, like, this is what it's like to kind of eat shit as an actor, <laughs> eat shit as a comedian, eat shit with women. Uh, so, and it's not all about like, and in my opinion, it's not about like being in any way bitter toward the career path I've chosen or whatever. It's just to show kind of the, the humor in the struggle. Like, if I didn't like it, I would stop doing it, you know? I love it, and I've had my successes and I've had my failures and it's up and down all the time just like for anybody else and you're always waiting for I guess whatever that quintessential breakthrough moment is but at the same time 
I think when I think about like focusing on that, it doesn't become fun anymore. And this web series as art imitating life for me was just kind of like it sounded like fun. It sounded like fun to put some of the stories that have actually happened to me into this particular medium. Uh, because as someone who's always done like stand up and improv and and uh, acting stuff, I felt like these things that I wanted to do in the series would be much more fun, like acted out as opposed to just making them into a bit. Uh, and obviously, it gave me an opportunity to, uh, I guess, selfishly show off a lot of my talented friends, including including the man I'm talking to right now, uh, and also show off selfishly my favorite place in the world, uh, specifically the, the city, but also even more specifically the neighborhood that I live in. Like almost all the locations in it are places that I regularly frequent and uh, there's almost nothing in, in that way, even though it's super small, low budget web series, it's purely it's purely the experience that is being retold. It's, it's almost as it happened. I mean, clearly some things are fudged but uh, for the most part, almost everything in the show happened in some way and sometimes it's just a matter of smashing ideas together to fictionalize it a little bit. But it's all based on something that really happened. And that was a fun challenge, too. Can we just can we just do something that's really interesting and fun and hopefully funny to some people, even though the show, while being kind of a sitcom, isn't supposed to be funny the whole time? I just wanted to see how real I could make the experience and really give people a, a taste of what it really is like to live in a, a big city and do this kind of stuff and for the most part always be trying to pay the next bill or network with the next person and all that stuff but along the way all the shit happens to you then in a lot of respects it almost becomes the act you know that's Sammy Weegett again we'll be playing a a more complete interview uh, I think episode after next that would be epi 35 but in the meantime you can find everybody's a comedian right there up on youtube i've got the episode that i'm in embedded at succotashshow.com and i'll also have the fourth episode that's dropping this week uh you can find that in the blog entry for uh, for this episode uh episode <laughs> epi 33 up at com. so check it out subscribe for updates and leave nice comments up on youtube and maybe just maybe there'll be a second season of everybody's a comedian and maybe I'll even get a chance to reprise my stunning portrayal of a TV commercial sleazebag. Boy, that'll be fun. Uh, <laughs> actually, it will be. Uh, you can rate us. People have been doing that, and you can too. So thanks to those who have gone up to iTunes and given us some stars. We really like the four- and five-star reviews. Those are nice. And if you uh, take a little essay test and just leave us an actual written review, that helps to get us up on new and noteworthy up on iTunes. And that is quite a treat. If you listen to us via Stitcher Smart Radio, you can give us a thumbs up. I don't know how we're rating on there, if we even show up at all. But uh, the more people rate us, the more visibility we get and the better we feel because uh, that's about all the payment we get. Well, you know what? That's not quite true because we have a donate button at com, And uh, we've had a few people clicking on that. And we thank everybody who has. Most recently, I want to thank Tom Beavis of Dysfunctional Asphyxiation, the new blog and podcast, for his donation to Succotash. Also, I just wrote a guest editorial piece for uh, dysfunctional asphyxiation that I think drops this week. It's all about stupid people and how I hate them. Uh, so, so thanks for that, Tom. Uh, if you want to uh, follow his tweets, he's at Barrelhouse Red 
on Twitter. Also, thanks to Travis Clark from Tiny Odd Conversations Podcast for his donation. And I said, uh, as I said earlier, you can donate as well. Just jump up to SuccotazShow.com, click on the donate button, and uh, our good friends at PayPal will do the rest. If uh, you'd like to read my latest review, you can go to SplitSider.com, where I'm reviewing Risk, the storytelling podcast that's hosted by the state graduate Kevin Allison. So you can see that at SplitSider.com. Just go up there and look for This Week in Comedy Podcasts. And then uh, actually later this week, I'll be reviewing something else. I don't even know what I'm reviewing yet, but uh, you can always stay stay in touch with that if you'd like. All right, we're almost ready to get to the interview with John Anilio, but first let's dip into our tweet sack. Ah, a quick dip in the tweet sack. Uh, first of all, I've gotten some nifty new submissions for some podcasts that I've not played yet. Uh, also a couple of old favorites, but uh, I'll be playing those in the next episode. Wanted to thank the folks at Spoodcast, Remasculate, Soda Pop Talk, Lee Camp, Way Too Hip Radio, and Sweet Feathery Jesus for shooting me their clips. If you have a favorite podcast that you've not heard yet on Succotash, just tweet about it and include at Succotash Show in your tweet. I will do my best to grab a hunk of that show you're talking about and play it on this show you're listening to right now. Also in the tweet sack this week, thanks for all the nice mentions from Combat Radio, The Random Variety Show, Don't Quit Your Day Cast, Risk, Monica Hamburg over at S&M Rants, Cocktails and Kimono, uh, <laughs> The Rigid Fist, The D-Head Factor, Phil Larness and Dean Haglin over at uh, Chill Pack Hollywood Hour, Some, uh, sorry, Same Three Guys, and Blogging Under the Influence. All those folks uh, dropped word about us in tweet sack this week, so thanks so much. Let's uh, get into my chat with John Anilio. First off, notice that I can now pronounce his name. The first time I played one of his songs on the show, I murdered Anilio. Could not figure out how to save it, say it to save my life. I will be playing some of John's songs and clips from his podcast, Functional Nerds, as our interview unspools here. And even a song that we featured before from Dana Carvey. Uh, but since I'm just dropping them into the interview, I'm not going to mention them as I play them. So to find out more, click over to the blog entry for this episode, and I will list everything that I play in the interview there. Also, be sure to go to johnanelio.com. That's J-O-H-N-A-N-E-A-L-E-O.com to download and hear not just the few songs we have on the show today, but a lot more that he's done. All right, let's roll it. The listeners of Succotash uh, were first made familiar with you when I played, I think, your Geek Dad song mm -hmm. on uh, the show so thank you for letting us uh, get that out there oh no problem no problem but uh, the deeper i get in your website the more i see you've done quite a bit in yeah. uh, both music yeah. and yeah. as you mentioned you have a website the uh, functional nerds podcast mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yep yep uh and what is that show about i haven't had a chance to listen to it yet Functional Nerds, um, we've been, Patrick Hester and I, uh, he is a writer and I am a, a singer-songwriter, and we started doing the podcast about two years ago. And the idea behind it was just that he and I were both doing separate solo podcasts. My, I was doing one for my music, he was doing a bunch of sort of random stuff, and we got together um, to do one where we were just going to talk about sort of the nerdy things that we liked, whether it be books or music or, or what have you. And 
Um, I started, it's funny, you know, cause, cause, you know, Succotash is a, is a comedy podcast and I have some songs that are, that are humorous, but I did not really start out that way when I started doing this. Um, my thing when I started doing what I'm doing now about five years ago was I was writing songs that were based on, um, science fiction books. It was just sort of a niche that I thought like, well, I, I like science fiction and fantasy books and uh, we'll, let me give that a, a shot. And, um, through, I ended up getting at sort of the comedic part of it about a, a year or two into it. But anyway, when we started doing Functional Nerds, uh, because I had sort of made a lot of um, friends within uh, the science fiction and fantasy author community, um, we immediately started getting um, authors on the show. Okay. I just had some friends, so I started asking them. So um, we had sort of morphed into a, uh, an, a science fiction and fantasy author interview show. Um, but and that's been kind of what we've been doing for the past year and a half. But actually recently we just started a, a slightly different format because, um, that wasn't really what we set out to do. We sort of fell into it and we were getting some of these kind of big name science fiction authors on, which was, which has been great. And we started getting books sent to us by the publishers <laughs> and it's cool, but it's like, well, that's not really what we set out to do. So we're sort of doing more of an overall kind of show where we're talking about, you know, news within sort of the nerd community and the oh, okay. science fiction community. And then we, we have the, um, we have a guest on each week too. And, and, um, you know, nine out of 10 times it's an author. Sometimes it's a musician. Sometimes it's an artist. I've made, uh, have a lot of good friends who are, are, uh, web comic artists as well as, um, some of the, uh, uh, cover artists for the the book, so okay. it's it's kind of a it's, it's become a nice uh, we've become part of this bigger overall um, artistic community. Uh, a lot of it is is based on science fiction, but a lot of it is sort of comics and other things like that as well. I'm John, he's Patrick. Together we're the functional nerds. I'm John. Um, I'll go first. Um, my pick of the week this week is Game of Thrones, not the book, but the uh, the TV series and HBO season one of Game of Thrones, I should say. Um, I do not have HBO. Uh, considering I'm the George R. R. Martin is not your bitch guy, you would think I would have watched Game of Thrones by now. I just did like this past week uh, because I do not have HBO. Uh, coming. I, I, yes, it is. Um, I went over a friend's house who has HBO to watch the first episode. And my plan was to go there every Sunday and then that just didn't happen. I was like, I'm not going there every Sunday night. Um, and, uh, you know, Game of Thrones is n- none of the HBO shows are on Netflix streaming, which mm. stinks. Um, right, and Hulu. the only, yeah, I is think. it on who it's on. Oh, no, actually they pulled them off. They, they've got it on HBO go. Right. That's the only place I think you yeah. can get them or you can get them on Amazon if you pay for each episode, you know, right. and it's, it's at least two bucks an episode. It might be $3 an episode. And I wasn't going to pay that. I'm, you know, I'm, I just wasn't, I saw someone do like an interesting web comic about that, about like, you know, this is why people are pirating your show, but that's in a whole nother discussion about like, you know, all of that. But, you know, as huge a fan as I am of, uh, of those books, you know, I just never watched it because I haven't, but you know, of course being the 
cheap bastard that I am, I was in my library and I saw it out, you know, the season one DVDs right out in my library and I took them and um, watched them all, watched all 10 episodes in the span of a week and a half or so. And I loved it. I thought it was excellent. I thought it was, and I haven't read the book in a very long time, um, but I thought it was very uh, faithful to the source material and I just loved everything about it. I thought um, the casting was great. I thought, you know, um, the direction was good. And, and you know, it, it, w- what I liked about it was, cause I haven't seen this, the, I haven't read the books in so long. It was like, uh, there's a lot of like, Oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. So, you know, I have not read dance of dragons yet. I haven't read the most recent book. I've read the other four. Um, so, I'm going to try to obtain, I don't know if the second season is out on DVD yet. I don't think it is. Cause I think it probably just wrapped up, um, you know, fairly recently, but uh, after that, I'll probably eventually go and read the, uh, the most recent book. Cause I'm sort of, those characters are fresh in my mind. So I loved it. Um, one of the things that I thought was sort of funny and watching it, they have like those little, um, DVD extras on it. And I watched some of that and they had the extra on creating the Dothraki language, which I thought was really interesting. Um, you know, they hired a guy to create the Dothraki language. They, yeah, you know, they stole that from Star Trek. Yeah, totally. Um, so, you know, and it was really great and really, really fun. And they were talking about like, yeah, you know, someone's going to end up doing, you know, Macbeth and Dothraki and that it, it's probably something I won't do, but I thought, boy, it would sure be funny if I ended up doing a version of George R. R. Martin is not your bitch in Dothraki. So, <laughs> so someone is really, you know, very, you know, very ambitious. I think that'd be awesome. You know, so, I, 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 I remember when they, when they hired the guy to create the Klingon language uh-huh. and so he did it. And then they came along with uh, the undiscovered country Mm-hmm. And they had um, I forget his name, but he was the bald Klingon with the with the eye patch, and he had to read Shakespeare and to be or not to be. And the guy who created the Klingon language didn't create like those verbs uh, or something. This, yeah, and yeah. he had to change things so that he could actually say to be or not to be. Very interesting. Very funny. Very funny. But you know, uh, it's it's actually really cool. Uh, I just I just went to a world building thing. Um, a world building wor- workshop on Saturday, mm-hmm. and basically it was a bunch of authors sitting around talking about world building and what you do, and and um, the idea of languages did come up a little bit briefly, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I think it takes it's a lot of hard work to like create your own language, and I mm-hmm. and I give the authors who actually go that extra mile a lot of props for doing Oof. that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it sounds like a unique set of slices of the nerd world, which is nice. Yeah, well, you know, you, you start to find out through doing all of this stuff that, you know, everything does get kind of connected and people are sort of fans of other things. So, you know, uh, your listeners might be familiar uh, with um, guys like Paul and Storm and Jonathan yeah. Colton, who are uh, – Paul and Storm particularly are, are you know, they're – they're very comedic. Like all of their songs are funny. Like they are comedy music. And um, – but they're big fans of science fiction and fantasy sure. books too, as is Jonathan Colton. Um, and, you know, I found myself as a, as a singer – excuse me, as a singer-songwriter, um, I didn't set out to write funny songs at first. Um, but I sort of wrote one. And as I was recording it, I really had a lot of hesitation about the first sort of funny (laughs) song that I did because I was like, it was such like a really niche song. It's a song called, um, 
George R. R. Martin is not your your bitch, and your your <laughs> listeners may be familiar with um, I, the I, Game I, of Yeah, I certainly am. <laughs> yeah, with the with with Game of Thrones, which is the HBO series, and that's based on George R. R. Martin's books. Yeah. And before it, he was extremely popular within the science fiction and fantasy literature community, but you know your general pop, population didn't know about it about him really until the, the HBO show came out. But a couple of years before the HBO show came out, another big author, a guy named Neil Gaiman, um, wrote a blog post about um, George R. R. Martin and about how he was, because uh, fans were complaining that he was late on the, the next <laughs> book. It took like five years and someone wrote Neil Gaiman and said, you know, as a fan of George R. R. Martin, do I have the right to be mad at him? Do I have the right to, you know, you know, uh, to expect this from him. And, and Neil Gaiman is this very eloquent English gentleman. And he wrote, no, you don't have the right. And George R. R. Martin is not your bitch. So I, I essentially wrote this song based on this blog post, which is so, you know, when I was writing, I'm like, there's going to be 10 people who are going to understand this. I don't know why I'm writing it, but I, I, I just went ahead and I did it. And um, as I was recording it, it was coming out. It was sounding really good. And I'm like, well, all right maybe 50 people will really like this and it'll be good. And and it became kind of a big deal. That song became a big deal within our community. Um, and it's still like my most downloaded listened to song. And because of that, because it was kind of a funny song, you know, I was really encouraged to keep going. I got an email from a reader who said he loved an author who wrote epic fantasy. He asked me if I thought the writer should feel like he's required to finish up the series. This is what I said. George R. R. Martin is not your bitch. No matter how much you cry. think the books are entertaining it's best to stop complaining writers just aren't machines george martin never signed a contract just work on that project so find something else to read have you tried
Not everything I do is, is funny, but I've written a lot of sort of humorous songs after that because people like them and I like doing them now. You know, it wasn't something yeah. that I, you know, I didn't have, uh, I like Weird Al, but I didn't grow up thinking I wanted to be Weird Al. I, I you know, I wanted to be, um, you know, the Beatles or, uh, <laughs> or Def Leppard or something. You know, I, I did, <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't that, but it's, you know, it's funny as you, you do stuff, you, you know, whatever creative thing you do, you, kind of do what you like and you try new things and sometimes you try something that you didn't think you would like doing and you do like doing it and people end up enjoying it so you're kind of encouraged to go down that path a little more now you're a uh you, you mentioned earlier uh probably before it'll get into the interview part that you're uh, a school teacher mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh what uh, what topics do you uh, do you teach? I teach music to elementary schools. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's uh, hence hence the uh, the pen name uh, yeah. <laughs> because you know years ago I was doing more sort of straight ahead singer songwriter stuff, and you know I had a website that was my own name, and um, not that I was doing anything racy, uh, certainly not, but it was it was becoming it was before everybody was online, yeah, and now the whole world is online, so. You know, you, I just I just didn't want to deal with it more than anything else. I would have students come up to me like, "I saw your website the other night," and I'm like, <laughs> "That's weird." And then you know, it was very freeing, sort of picking a pen name because well, what's nice about it is it's it's a pen name, but it's still my name. It's just not really what I changed the spelling a little bit, and um, you know, so it's still my name. You know, because when I decided to do that, you know, to sort of perform under a pen name. You know, I thought like, oh, I should, maybe I should pick like a, a name, you know, come up with a name like Nine Inch Nails or something like that. And and I'm like, well, so for instance, like we're doing this interview now. What are you going to call me, yeah. Nine? Like, what? like it's so stupid, you know, so uh, it was sort of a good workaround to sort of use my real name, but not a Googleable name that yeah. would sort of interfere with my real life. And it, it was very freeing because I don't think I would have written a song called with bitch in the title, you know, if, if I was using my real name. Because I'm like, ah parent of a kid's going to find out about that and i'm going to catch heat about it so um so yeah so my my day job and my music and uh podcasting are very separate no one at my job even knows that i do this really uh you know now, any of your geek your students stumbled upon the truth no not yet um you know no uh, I, it's gonna happen someday and i and i've done you know you said you you played uh the, the geek dad song um I do some work for Wired.com. Um, Wired.com has a blog called Geek Dad, um, and I do. I'm, I'm I'm sort of an irregular contributor to them, and I'll, I've done some sort of instructional videos and some other sort of music based stuff. And it's a great community of guys over there. Um, but it's a big site. It's Wired.com, sure. and, and and when I was doing the videos, I, was, I did a series of videos for them when I was sort of teaching nerdy songs to play on the guitar, and and I was thinking like. Someday a parent's going to come across one of these. It's it's bound to happen. They're like that guy looks familiar, you know. So, uh, but no, I still haven't yet. And if it does, uh, you know, I stand behind everything I do, I do, and nothing that I do is, you know, I have a couple of swears and a few songs. But you know, last time I checked, that's not illegal. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm okay with it, you know. Well, that's great. So what um, what really kind of set you on the track of wanting to dip into uh, music enough that you're doing it as a really legitimate sideline? Um, well, you know, I, I started doing music kind, kind of later, 
you know, as a, as a teenager, I was like 16 when I started playing the guitar and I just, I became obsessed with it right away, even though I started kind of late. And I, that I think was part of the obsession was I, I started to enjoy it so much and I decided that I really wanted to do something with music for my career. And I got into teaching because I, it's kind of one of the only ways that you can sort of get a paycheck as a musician is if you're a, a teacher, you know, it's, yeah. it's sort of a steady, steady gig. And I just kind of thought, you know, even later on when I started working, I'm like, well, I can either teach, you know, Monday through Friday, eight to three, or I can get a job in a coffee shop and work nights and I'd have to take off, you know, put in to take off for, for gigs and stuff. And I'm like, and make a lot less money. So it was sort of a, a very practical uh, decision early on, but you know, it's funny because uh, I'm in my, my late thirties now. And if the world when I was 22 was like, it is now, I think I would have probably, I don't know if I would have gone into teaching at the time because as a musician 15 years ago, you know, it was still very much like, oh, you have to have a band and you have to play shows and try to get a record label's attention and get signed. And it's this, this whole idea of like winning the lottery, essentially. Mm. And I never bought into that. Like, I always thought that was that was crap. You know, I just I was I just and, and I played with a million guys that were really in on that dream. And being in New Jersey, you know, very close to New York, there's lots of crappy clubs you can play. And unfortunately, a lot of those crappy clubs were still have a big name. Mm. So it's like, oh, no, we got to go play CBGBs. And I'm like, yes, in like 1979, <laughs> CBGBs was a cool place to play. But in 1993, it's not such a cool place to play. Yeah. And yeah, there was still this illusion that like you play a club and there's going to be like a record company guy there that was going to sign you. And like, I never bought into any of that. And it was just like a life that I didn't want to pursue because it just seemed everything was so out of your control. Yeah. And, but nowadays, you, a musician, and really, I think it's for any uh, art, you know, whether you're a comedian or a writer or a musician, you have the ability to get your work out into the world via a podcast or a blog or, you know, all the social media, you know, Twitter and Facebook and all that. You can sort of slowly, organically become part of a community or create your own community or create your own audience, however you want to put it. And that just didn't exist 15 years ago or 20 years ago. And now it does. And now I find myself in a position where I'm a part of a bigger community and I have a, a, a decent, um, I hate to call it audience because it makes it sound like I'm up here and other people are down here. And that's, I don't think that's the case. But people who are in- listenership. Yes, listen. Well, people that are interested in, in the work that I do and yeah. that are interested in songs and, and are, and are, you know, excited to hear when I put a, a new new tune out, and you know that to me is is such an amazing thing, and it's something that I continue to work on. You know, and it's something where I'm making you know a, a small secondary income doing it now, and I'd like to make it more of my, sure. <laughs> my income moving forward. Like I think so many of us are. Um, oh, absolutely. And, and um, you know, it's but but really. If, if that existed when I was 21, I may have, you know, would have worked hard at it. But, I, you know, at 21, I just saw dudes in their 40s playing in wedding bands and, you know, <laughs> playing a bunch of gigs they hated. And I just thought, I don't think this is the life that I want to go down. These people just seem very depressed. And I, th- I think I'd rather just get up and go to work in the morning and sort of do music 
on my own terms. You know, I just kind of figured if I try to make it as a, as a performing musician, I'm going to have to play in wedding bands and I'm going to have to play in, you know, just cover, you know, and at the time when I was in college, I was playing in a cover band and it was fun for a while, but after a while I kind of hated it. Hmm. And I'm like, I don't, I don't want to do music that I, I, I'm not going to really love and get something out of doing. Um, so I'd rather work a job teaching, be done at three and then, do per- perform the music that I want to play and not ever care about making a cent doing it. And, <laughs> and, um, and that's the way that I sort of operated. And, you know, eventually that led to what I'm doing now, but it took, you know, it took 10 years of, um, you know, performing in coffee shops and bars all throughout like the East coast to where I sort of hit upon what I'm doing now. Like I didn't, this wasn't just born, you know, the minute I started performing. Sometimes one film is enough I don't want a sequel that fits only fluff And even though I love these characters The third installment of this franchise should have never occurred Part two announced, man, I can't wait to catch it. Famous last words, you know they're going to screw it up. There's like a handful of good trilogies, the rest suck. I'm saying, really, it's rarely a good thing. I die a little each time I see it like the ring. Sure, it comes down to if the flick succeeds, but really, who are these asking for three species? It's been a few years, they'll probably reboot. No character depth, just dress it up and shoot. And each time we hope it's just better. Now Transformers talk about a trilogy of terror. Had me all excited now and this is what you bring back. I should have known it for flat. They didn't cast a wheel jack. And it's ironic that I'd like to forget. And my only hope relies on the butterfly effect. I'm did lots of different things and and it still changes like you know as i said you know i didn't start out doing comedic stuff at all and i still don't really consider what i do comedic some of it's fun like jonathan colton is a good example i really admire what what he does because his songs are funny but they're funny because of the way he delivers it and the subject matter um but he's not often going for a punchline in his songs Mm -hmm. you know his, his songs are you know the context is what makes it's funny and that he's a great musician and a great singer and a great songwriter. And then you realize he's singing about something sort of absurd. And I really like that. And I think what I do is, is a little 
more similar to that than, um, you know, and Paul and Storm sort of operate in a similar place. Paul and Storm really are, they, their songs are set up to get a laugh after every, every line. And, um, I just actually did a gig, uh, opening for them a couple weeks ago um, at this event called Nerdtacular, which was in oh, yeah. Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, a great gig. Uh, really was um, delighted to have the opportunity to open for them, and they did a, a great set. And really, they're they're Paul and Storm are getting to the point where they are embracing their comedic side more and more. They actually did it like a bit in the middle where it wasn't music at all or very little. It was like they did. Um, they did this sort of fake uh, TED presentation, if you know. Oh, like, okay, the sure. Conference. They did this like TED length thing, which was about eighteen <laughs> minutes, where they had you know they had video and they like sort of did like a little tutorial, and it was hilarious and it was it was a great bit, but it wasn't them playing and singing. Yeah. It was them, and it was really interesting to see because you could tell this was a new thing for them. Hmm. So they're always trying new stuff. To, I mean, I think whatever you do, you got to. Keep your mind open and try new things because you don't know where you're going to go. Because Paul and Storm started in a acapella group 15, 20 years ago. Because mm-hmm. I remember crossing paths with them years ago. They were in a group called Da Vinci's Notebook, which was just a straight-up acapella group that sang sort of funny-ish tunes. Oh, okay. you know, now they're in a whole different stratosphere. So, Yeah, I, we've featured one of the Paul and Storm songs recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are funny guys. And they got a lot of material. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, they've been doing it for years. They've yeah. been doing it for years, so they have a lot of stuff. And when they perform shows, they just every song is a killer because they have a big, um, they have a big catalog to draw from, and they've performed a lot, and they know it works. And you know, it's like a a stand up comedian. Like they don't go out and improvise an hour set. That set is worked and worked and worked and worked and worked again. And it's you know, you, I mean, some some comedians do a lot of improv too, but I know. Some of the comedians that I enjoy, you, you know, I, I listen to a lot of different comedic podcasts. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you listen to uh, the Nerdist podcast, sure. you know, they, they talk, uh, you know, they, they have comedians on all the time. And what I enjoy about that is it's it's a funny show, but a lot of times they get really into the craft of it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I like that about that. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, even though it's not what I do, I really it, it all, no matter what you do, it almost always comes down to work and hours put into it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's like, and you know, someone like, um, yeah, I know they, they've, he's talked to like Pat Oswalt and, you know, and, and I've heard interviews with Louis CK and Louis CK's whole trip is that, you know, he puts together an hour, works his ass off, putting it together, does it, records it, throws it away and starts all over again. Yeah. And, that that's really inspiring no matter what creative thing you do that he works super hard to put good material together puts it together and then moves on and keeps doing it he's not doing the same jokes that he was doing 5 years and and that is an interesting difference between comedy and music because in comedy i think you kind of get get crap for doing your same stuff sometimes and yeah. for music, you get crap for not doing your same stuff. It's, it's kind of the opposite, I think. You know. Well, yeah. So. It's how many times can you hear the same joke? Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, funny enough, you know, I think humorous music, funny songs, people do enjoy hearing them, even though it's sort of the joke being told yeah, again, yeah. again, again. Yeah, it's that's that's an interesting conundrum because when I was putting my set together for Paul and Storm, it was it was the the biggest crowd that I, I had performed for. And I was thinking about it after the fact, and I really, and I knew, 
it was going to be Paul and Storm's audience, and and I really wanted to feature my my funnier tunes, and and I was thinking like, yeah, the the couple tunes that I did, the when the chorus finally comes in, the chorus is sort of a punchline to the verse, yeah, and it's funny, but I'm like, well, I don't know if this really bears a lot. Like, if someone came and saw me play five times over the course of a year or something, would that still be funny the fifth mm. time? I don't know. And I guess it's something that I'm going to learn. Oh, interesting. Yeah. You know, I don't know, but I think you're right. I think having the melody tied to it does, you know, um, it, it makes it makes it a little little easier, or it makes it still enjoyable after the fact. You know, bringing up Weird Al, I still like hearing old Weird Al songs. Again. Yeah, um, one of uh, friends of our show is uh, Dana Carvey, who's a buddy mm-hmm. of mine, and mm-hmm. he did a song. We were in the studio this a couple of years ago, and we featured on the show called The World's Catchiest Song. And mm-hmm. it was designed just to be a catchy song. Mm-hmm. And the lyrics just talk about how catchy the song is. Mm-hmm. And you yeah. can hear it over and over and over again because it's just the rhythm of it and the melody and everything else. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, step right up for the world's catchiest song. Catch you, 
Did we ever get to the best part? The whole thing's the best part, you idiot. Sorry. Speaking of Dana Carvey, and I remember seeing some of his stand-up where he's, you know, and, and I was surprised that he was such a good musician. I, I didn't realize it the first time I saw, you know, because I was obviously familiar with him from Saturday Night Live. And then I think I saw some of his stand-up where he's playing a lot of guitar and stuff. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, I did not know this about him. But, you know, talking about the music part of it, if you're of a certain age and someone is preparing a dish with broccoli, <laughs> you're singing the chopping broccoli song. You yep. just are. And it's still funny. And, and, and it's once in a while, if you see those like, you know, best of Saturday night live things somewhere and that's on that is that sketch holds up and probably because of the music, you know, some sketches hold up better than others. Yeah. And that one, I love it. I, I could still watch him making up that song. You know, that's the whole character thing where he's sort of, you know, I guess it's supposed to be like some crazy singer songwriter and the yeah. record guy's like, what's your new tune? He's like, well, I've been working on this for a while. Yeah. <laughs> so, I love yeah. that though. So that, that's great. Who can you look at as being sort of your inspirations? If you got into music so late, what, mm-hmm. um, who sort of got you there? So I was into all like the eighties hair metal bands. Like, so like I was into like Def Leppard and white snake and white lion. If you had white and an animal in your name, <laughs> I really loved your band in circa 1989. Um, and that got me into playing guitar and a lot of like the, uh, there's a lot of sort of metal guitarists that were like instrumental guitarists, like mm-hmm. Joe Satriani and Steve. I was into all those guys. And, um, I just got really obsessive about practicing and, um, <clears throat> And and then I wanted to go to college to study it, so I did. And you know, while I was in college, I studied classical guitar, and um, you know, I, I did all the music major stuff that you do. And I was into progressive rock bands. I was into like Rush and Yes and all that kind of stuff. And but what happened was, as as I went through school, because I didn't sing at all hmm. when I first started, it wasn't until I got to college that I started singing okay. a little bit. And then you know, I was always in bands and. I was the guitar player in the band, but I always wrote music too. And, you know, when you're, when you're sort of writing tunes with people, then you start thinking about, oh, like, I don't want to just write like a guitar riff. I want to write a tune. So you start writing tunes and the next thing you know, you're writing words and then you're singing background vocals. And, you know, it was sort of a real evolution for me. It's like every band I, I, I became more of the singer songwriter guy rather than just the guitar. And every band was sort of like a step more in that direction, you know? And so finally, you know, and it wasn't until I was in my mid twenties when I really sort of struck out as a, as a singer songwriter, as like a solo singer songwriter. And I, I played folk venues for a long time and nothing I did was comedic at that time. And none of it had anything with science fiction. It was pretty much straight up folk pop stuff because as I went through, I, you know, I got into other, you know, I got into the Beatles and I got into, um, you know, uh, crowded house and all all these different really good pop singer songwriters, and um, that's what I did for a long time, and I played that circuit for a, a long time on the East Coast. Shaking my confidence lately 
start doing sort of the science fiction comedic thing until about five years ago. And what led me to that was sort of this idea of, you know, about seven or eight year, years ago, I guess now, um, I got, uh, this is when uh, iPods first came out, I guess. And um, I wanted to get an iPod because I'm always listening to music. And one of the things that sold me on getting an iPod was podcasts. And this is when podcasts were brand new. There was probably like 50 actual podcasts out there at the time. If there were that many, who knows? I mean, we're talking like 2007 now, something like that. So it would have been like uh, Ricky Gervais. Yeah. Um, Nobody likes onions. (laughs) It was just when podcasts were put on iTunes because that was a big deal. There were podcasts around for a year or two before that. Um, and I was always a big radio listener and because I teach music and because I do music all day, sometimes when I'm in the car, I didn't, I don't want to listen to music. I want to listen to people talking and I would listen to sports radio a lot, even though I'm not even a huge (laughs) sports fan, but I would just, I sort of liked the sound of people having a conversation. I found it sort of soothing and podcasts to me were, well, this is great. You can listen to something about anything that you want. You don't have to miss any of it because you can stop it. So Podcasts were a big selling point for me in terms of getting an iPod to begin with. And then as this was happening, I just started thinking – I was sort of taking a break from performing because uh, my wife and I were having a child and, um, you know, I I needed to sort of be home more. And so I was sort of took a break from performing for about a year. And in that time, I was just thinking about podcasts and I was thinking about blogging and some writing. Uh, I, I did. I participated in NaNoWriMo, which is National Novel Writing Month, oh, okay. and, I, and I did that two years. And it, I'm not a novelist or a writer at all. I don't know what drove me to do that, but <laughs> I, I did it. I was really inspired to do it for some reason. And I just started thinking about, and I was writing longer songs, and you know, I, I, with this whole idea of blogging and podcasting, I just felt like, you know, I think that's something that I'd like to try. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I just thought like, I really want to try this. I feel like I have something to say and maybe I can say it through a blog or say it through a podcast. And this was again, I think Jonathan Colton, this is probably a little bit before Jonathan Colton did his big thing a week where he was, you know, putting a song out every week. I think Mm. that was maybe about a year later, but I really thought about it and I was reading all of these books about sort of getting started with it and, you know, one of the things that I came across, which really made a lot of sense to me was don't try to appeal to everybody. You know, 
find what your niche is because you want to sort of overserve uh, a niche that is not being met that much yet. You know, do your thing that's unique and you'll find the people that are going to like what you're doing. But if I just did sort of just straight up pop folk stuff, there's a billion people who do that. Right. What makes me different? So I started thinking about, so, well, what, <laughs> that's a, that's a great bit of advice. However, it's hard to find what makes you unique. And I think it takes you a long time as a human being to figure that out. You know, like, I mean, I was a little bit older already, so I really got to sort of sit down and just think, well, what do I like? What, what do I do? And what are the things that I like where it's something that I can put out into the world that is a little different. And, you know, I started thinking like, well, I write sort of these story songs and I'd already sort of started doing this anyway, but I, I just, I was writing, I wrote a couple songs about a couple of books that I read. They're, they're sort of inspired by it. And I'm like, well, there's this whole field of bloggers who are book reviewers for science fiction and fantasy books. Like what if I just started writing a lot of songs about these books? <laughs> there's sort of a built in audience. And I thought like, all right, well, let's give that a shot. And so I came up with the idea in the blog that I started at the time, which is still my blog. It's called Sci-Fi Songs. Um, and that's what I did for – and I was putting out a song every couple of weeks. And I just started you know, developing relationships with these bloggers um, saying like, hey, I saw that you read this book. I actually wrote a tune about it. At the, you know, I think you might like it. And a lot of times they would then feature it on their blog. And then what happened very quickly was I got sort of referred to some of the, the bigger blogs in the niche – who had relationships with the publishers and the authors themselves. And then I found myself in the position where the, some of the science fiction publishers were then hiring me to write tunes for their <laughs> books as like sort of a promotional thing. And I actually have a couple of tunes where like the sheet music appears in the appendix. Oh, of funny. Yeah. So it's like fairly quickly, you know, it was sort of a good, and the thing is, look, yes, in some ways it was sort of calculated on my part to like, focus on that niche but it's like i i was able to do you had no idea it was going to go off in that direction no i didn't and i i didn't it became more successful than i thought it was but it worked because it was authentic because it was what i liked i didn't think like oh there's a bunch of suckers i can rook out of a bunch of it was nothing i knew it was a small niche but i was like well i like reading these books so i'm gonna write some stuff about it Nexus 6 and they get their kicks Singing opera and killing humans She's got short dark hair and an icy stare Alright Is Rachel Rosen really an android? Can Rachel Rosen really be alive? Is Rachel Rosen Cause he fears that he might be an android He's got a laser tube and a bad attitude tonight I booked a hotel room, I hope she gets here soon I've got three androids to retire Share an android kiss at the St. Francis tonight Is Rachel Rosen really an android? Can Rachel Rosen really be a 
also, I got to be a, a part of this bigger community and, um, you know, I just kind of kept going. And like I said, eventually I started writing some songs that were a bit humorous, which had bigger appeal. And then, you know, when I wrote that George R. R. Martin song, well, he's very popular and Neil Gaiman is, and they both heard the song and liked it. So they put it on their blogs and they have, you know, Neil Gaiman, I think the last time I checked, has like 2 million followers yeah. on Twitter. So, you know, that really sort of helps spread the word about what you do. And um, I've also gotten to be pretty good friends with a couple of the people in the um, tech industry. So uh, there's the whole like Twit network of podcasts and um, Tom Merritt, who does a couple of the shows there. Um, he used to do podcasts for CNET. Um, he has, you know, he became a fan of what I did about a year or two ago. So he's really helped me out. He really helped me get the Nerdtacular gig opening for Paul and Storm. Um, they've played my music on those podcasts a bunch of times. So it's, I, I find myself in this community and, but it's, you know, I've been really focused on this community for a good five or six years. And, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, it happened kind of, the first initial couple of things happen kind of quickly, but it's, you know, it took a little while. And the thing is, is once you have a little bit of success with it, you then just have to move on to the next thing because any little, any one thing doesn't really mean that much. This is what I've kind of grown because I've been on some podcasts and things that I know have t big listenerships or I've been mm -hmm. featured on a blog that I know has, you know, 20,000 subscribers or something like that. And I remember the first time I've had those opportunities, I would be really excited and be like, this is going to be great. I'm going to get like, you know, 200 new Twitter followers or, you know, what whatever metric you want to like sort of gauge your audience at. And what I notice is no one thing seems to have a huge impact it's yeah. a lot of a lot of little things it's oh, a you lot wait, you wait till you get the succotash bump it's uh, <laughs> tremendous. i look forward to that i look forward to that <laughs> i i talked i talked to a lot of authors who who are sort of in the same position out there you know trying to spread the word about their books and you know i've talked to a couple people and they've mentioned a couple of things where they've seen a big bump but that's been their experience too it's like you know you just have to kind of be yourself and be out there and be available. And, you know, it, you have to be on um, like a million blogs and you have to be on a yeah. million podcasts. And it's sort of like, yeah, the, I read the, the bugaboo about social media is you have to be social, highly, yes. highly social. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Right. And I remember hearing this, reading this bit of data somewhere years ago that, you know, People have to, whether it's your name or a song or a book or whatever, it's sort of a piece of advertising, I guess, that like the first time you see a commercial for something, you're not even aware that it exists. Like you're just so tuned out as a person that it's not even and, – and I'd heard somewhere that you have to see a commercial something like seven times before you're even aware that it's there, that it exists. And I remember thinking like that sounds about right. So I think when – people hear your name or see you listed on a blog or see someone linked to you, they see your name. I think the first six times, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. It's sort of like that seventh time or, or whatever it is. Yeah. It's sort of like, it's the way I find a lot of authors that we get on the show. I've probably seen their name 10 times before I'm like, Oh, I keep seeing this, this person's name pop up. I want to see what this is about a little more. Why, is, why does this person's name keep popping up? by people that I like and that I trust. Yeah. So it's, that's kind of the way it works. So you kind of, kind of, and, and the way you do that is by 
just keep putting work at. So you do a podcast. A podcast is a great way because a podcast is a way where you have a new bit of content. And is a Sakatasha weekly show? Uh, sort of. <laughs> okay. It's it's about weekly. <laughs> yeah, it's a week to two weeks, depending how busy yeah. I am. But it's it is unique in that it's you know our our gimmick is that we're playing clips of comedy podcasts, mm-hmm. and we right. have some original material, but it's very you know, sparse. Uh, mm-hmm. And usually, I play between you know nine and twelve clips from comedy podcasts. Right, right. So, what if I may turn the interviewer around? Because <laughs> I interview people all the time. What inspired you to put Succotash together? Then, where did the idea for that come from? Um, I wanted to do a comedy co- uh, podcast. I've mm-hmm. come from comedy. I've done improv for thirty years. I used to run comedy clubs and book comedy mm-hmm. clubs, and know dozens of stand-ups that are friends mm-hmm. of mine. And I listened for like a year going, what can I do that's going to be different? And nobody mm-hmm. was doing this. And originally, and I've told my listeners before, I was going to do like a sort of a version of the soup where okay. I would kind of ding bad podcasts. And mm-hmm. I realized the podcast industry is still too young to really take a hit like that. And right. I think it would chase away listeners and podcasters. Mm-hmm. So I let people decide for themselves whether the clips I'm playing are funny Mm-hmm. I have my favorites, um, mm-hmm. but I'll just put stuff out there. I'll go, hey, these guys sent this in. What mm-hmm. do you think? And yeah. tell people where to hear more if they want. Cool. Yeah. No, it's, 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 a, it's a great concept. And that's the thing. you got to find what your thing is. You know? so right. it's, and, how, and how long have you been doing Suckatash? Uh, it's been a year uh, this last April. Well, that's good. Most people don't make it that long. You yeah. know, I think, you know, uh, if any success we've had on Functional Nerds, it's because we do it every week and we've been doing it for two years. And most people do the pod fade thing where they yes. start it and then it's just gone. And I've seen some really good ones go and I'm like, you had, you squandered. For, yeah. Because I think, you know, kind of what I was saying a moment ago about the people hearing you or, you know, seeing your name seven times. Mm-hmm. If people listen to you on a podcast, I think it's I think it's much faster than that. I think it's much deeper than that. Um, you know, it's podcasting numbers wise um, because I've dealt with a lot of different blogs between Wired and this one called SF Signal and a lot of other ones that get tons of traffic. Yeah. So when you're dealing with a blogger or the, the, someone that runs a blog, they're used to their numbers being a certain amount. Let's say it's they have 20,000 subscribers. That's what I would consider a big blog to have something like that, a really big blog. Um, and they might get that many hits a day or, or more. So when they're dealing with those numbers and then, you know, I've seen some of those blogs sort of experiment with doing podcasts before and they're immediately appalled by the numbers because yeah. it's, it's, it's the numbers are in the hundreds, not the thousands, not the tens of thousands even. Yeah. And, what I always tell them, I'm like, yes, but what does 20,000 blog subscribers mean? A lot of people might be subscribed. They might not even – they might just skip it over. And even if you do get a hit, it might literally just be a hit. Like someone clicked on it and be like, eh, not for me. Move yeah. on. If someone's downloading your podcast and listening to your half hour to hour to two hour, however long your podcast is, they're invested. You know, they, they – it, it took a lot more work for them to do it and they're listening and you're talking to them every week my name is john and i'm an orc from the scalzi clan i write in the genre known as sci-fi i leave 
at home I carry an axe and shield in my hand Now what do I see high up in the sky Is that where we are the unicorn Pegasus kids in a gagging Holding a blood-drenched spear in it Is that the wing on a unicorn Pegasus kids in a garret? Reeking avid across the land. I took Will in when he was once alone. talked about nerdist um podcast uh, a few minutes ago you know look at what chris hardwick's done with that chris hardwick was a guy that i always enjoyed and i remember him on singled out yeah. way back in the day and then i remember seeing him pop up on a lot of the clip shows he he would mm-hmm. show up on um you know like all the i love the 80s shows and right. stuff like that and i and i remember seeing that and i think i saw a bit of his stand-up and everything i'm like that's really funny like uh, he should you know i wish he was doing more and he, I think he was a guest on Adam Carolla's podcast, which I'm a, I'm a big fan of. And like, and then he, Nerdist started not long after I remember hearing him on that. He sort of was a guest on a bunch of podcasts I was listening to, and then he started doing his podcast. And like, his career is so much bigger than it was before yeah. he started doing that podcast. <laughs> and that's, uh, I, I've told my listeners, if you hear a comic appear on eight to nine podcasts as a guest, chances are he's grooming himself to do his own. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think he must have been doing that because I feel like I heard him on a bunch of different podcasts and then all of a sudden Nerdist started and it was – for me, it was you know, 
right up my alley because I, I, I love – I listen to most of the podcasts I listen to are, are comedy podcasts, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, but he had it from his, you know, sort of nerdy point of view. And the thing is, again, he did it every week and now yeah. – and did you like see it. just today was announced he was uh, Nerdist Industries was acquired by Legendary Productions. The no, I did not hear. The crew that does uh, Bat- the Batman movies and stuff like wow. that. Yeah. Cool. I did not hear that. Wow. I have to go, go check that out later. But it's like here's a, he's a great example because, you know, I don't know what his draw was as a stand-up comedian before he started doing the podcast, but I don't think it was that great. No. And now I think – he can do some pretty nice live gigs um, with a pretty decent audience because his fan base that he developed a lot through the podcast, they hear him every week. Yeah, and Mark, Mark like Maron, the same thing. Yeah, he's another great example, a guy that was around for years and years and years, and you would see him show up on, you know, whatever, um, you know, sort of stand-up sort of specials or, you know, multi – I remember back in the day, you know uh, – <laughs> I, I always loved stand up and I always loved there was a million stand up shows um where it would just be, you know, a comedian they would have like five comedians on an hour. There was one on like on Saturday night or maybe it was Friday night, I forget what it was called, but it was just like, you know, you'd get a bunch of stand ups and then M T V had their comedy yes. shows. And I loved all of that stuff and um you know, so you would see someone like Mark Maron show up on those, so you knew him. But then, you know, he starts doing his podcast, and now he's got a, a better career than he's ever had. Yep. Yep. But again, it's it's because people are really super engaged, and yes. it's it's very different than 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 say a, a blog. A blog could be a way to reach a lot of people. A podcast is a way to to really reach people deeply. Well, plus again, it's it becomes social. People heard Mark Maron and talked about his angst and his problems mm-hmm. and everything else, and he he could do that as a stand up, and it doesn't have the impact as mm-hmm. me listening to him when I'm on a treadmill in a gym. Right. You mm-hmm. know, a very personal yeah. experience. I agree. I agree. Yeah. So, kids out there, get your own podcast started. <laughs> That's what I'm telling you. So, John, what do you have uh, coming up in the uh, near future? Um, well, I'm going to, like I said, I just did, um, the nerdtacular gig with, uh, opening for Paul and Storm. So I'd love to continue doing gigs like that. The next big gig I have is actually in Dallas, Texas. Um, I'm going to be performing as the musical guest of honor at FenCon, which is a science fiction and fantasy (laughs) convention. I do play some of those conventions. Um, so I, I do some of that. Um, and we're, like I said, we just sort of re sort of changed the format of the functional nerds. So I'm still over there doing that podcast every week. And, um, so we've got that going on and just, um, hopefully going to try to put uh, an album out this summer. Um, one of the things that I do with my music is I do the, um, I really, I, I've been giving my music away, uh, as a way to help build my audience. Um, and so when I put a new song out, I usually make it available for free, but you join my mailing list, you know, I, okay. I this idea of just wanting to have people join my mailing list. So, um, but people have been sort of asking me for a new album. Um, so I'm sort of putting together a new album and I hope to have a new album out eh, within the next couple of months. So that's, that's the plan is to try to get something that people can actually buy. I, I get people emailing, which is a nice problem to have is people email me like, I want to pay you. You're not letting me pay you. And I'm like, message heard. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's sort of the position you have to be in. Like, I, th- I think it's 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 good to get to that point where people are asking. You know, it's kind of like the Louis C.K. thing. You know, he's sure. doing things now where he's making 
his product, you know, his, his stand-up routines and all of his different his tickets now yeah. for his shows. Yeah. He's making them as affordable as possible, but the demand is there. So to me, it's this idea of, you know, don't put the, the cart before the horse. Like, sure. so I'm, I've, over the past couple of years, I've been trying to sort of create that demand and that's happening now. So now I want to have more product out there for people. So hopefully I'll have an album out within the, uh, the next, uh, yeah, two or three months or so. Well, let us know when it drops, and we will uh, give it a big plug on our show. And um, if you don't mind, we'll play a couple of your songs, and uh, I'd love to play a clip from uh, from your podcast as well. Sounds great. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate sure. it. Thanks for your time. Take care. Bye. Bye. Friends, if the high cost of air travel is getting you down, then the all-new Henderson's Flying Jodhpurs should have you as high as the proverbial kite. While these sharp new business casual pants can't actually imbue you with the power of flight, slipping them on is practically the next best thing to getting there, wherever there happens to be. Never again be hassled by a jumbo-sized seatmate or a perfumed matron stinking up your space, or suffer seats that are crammed so close together that they make a body bag look roomy. With Henderson's Flying Jodhpurs, you get to put the world on hold. And by hold, I mean that's where you'll be flying from now on, in the cargo hold. Our patented flyers are specially designed to make air transport superbly comfortable, whether you're in a pet carrier, cardboard box, or wooden crate. With plenty of extra padding, it's like having your own first-class seat. Henderson's custom-fitted flank tanks hold enough breathable oxygen for you to survive a flight from Shanghai to Timbuktu. With the extendable bib and hood lined with 100% genuine alpaca, you'll stay toasty warm no matter how high you happen to fly. And speaking of high, unlike makers of inferior brands of aviation breeches, Henderson's Flying Jodhpurs come with a built-in altimeter, so not only will you be alerted when your air supply starts to run thin, but you'll also know when you've made it into Henderson's exclusive Mile High Club. While most reputable air carriers prohibit passengers from flying in the cargo hold, Henderson's has worked out agreements with the remaining disreputable airlines to welcome aboard anyone sporting a pair of Henderson's Flying Jodhpurs. Originally designed for Amelia Earhart, the Wingwalkers Club of Altoona, Ohio, and Area 51, Henderson's Flying Jodhpurs are available wherever Army and Navy surplus goods are sold. That's Henderson's, makers of fine slacks and loincloths since 1903. And now, back to Suckatash. Our old buddy, that raging moderate Will Durst, is winding himself up as the November election looms ever closer. There was a lot of brouhaha about the asinine comment from the, about the superhuman capabilities that rape victims have that were made by Todd Aiken last week. And believe it or not, Durst's got something to say on the subject. Hey, guys. Will Durst here, working like crazy to find the humor in Missouri Senate hopeful Todd Aiken's recent celebrated claptrap. Now, normally, rape and funny live in two different solar systems whose orbits rarely, if ever, intersect. Systems with significantly different trajectories and fields of gravity, if you catch my drift. But this guy's idiotic remarks are the exception that proves the rule, winning him in one fell swoop, that Joe Biden foot so deep in his mouth he's probably tickling his spleen with his shoelaces Lifetime Achievement Award. During a television interview, the Republican congressman told the reporter, that what he understands from doctors, women who are legitimately raped don't get pregnant. 
Wow. Where do you start? Um, legitimately raped. Uh, suffice it to say that no qualifying adverb is ever necessary in front of that particular noun, especially from a man. And what kind of doctors is he hanging out with? Do their white jackets have long, long sleeves that wrap around the back where they're buckled real tight? And this guy is a member of the House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology? Hope he's concentrating on space and technology. Republicans needed to reignite the war on women right before the National Convention, the same way a fireworks factory needs a grease fire on July 3rd. Meanwhile, an oblivious Aiken is trying to walk back his comments, and the GOP is trying to walk him back over a cliff. They must have realized that misspoke was not going to cut it this time because the entire party rented jetpacks to fly away from the radioactive congressman as far and as fast as possible. But the Tea Party favorite uncompromisingly refuses to quit. And Democrats across the nation are shouting themselves hoarse, fanning the flames of this conflagration, while at the same time whispering words of encouragement, hoping this symbol of ignorance exercises his God-given right to remain stupid in public. For Suckatash, the podcast of comedy podcasts, I'm Will Durst. Thank you, Will Durst. You can catch more of Will on willdurst.com. Also, his tweets at Will Durst on Twitter. That is going to do it for Epi 33. Again, a little bit of a long episode. Hope that's okay. Thank you, John Anilio, for your time. Thank you so much for downloading, streaming, or just plain listening to us. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, there are a few different ways to go. You can get me at Mark, M-A-R-C, at SuccotashShow.com. Suckatash is, well, if you downloaded the episode, it should be right there. But it's S-U-C-C-O-T-A-S-H show.com we're also on twitter at succotash show please like us on facebook at the succotash show page and you can also call us on the succotash hotline at 818-921-7212 we'd love to hear from you we will be back with a pile of clippage for epi 34 but in the meantime please remember to pass the succotash won't you You've been listening to Suckatash, the comedy podcast podcast with your host, Mark Hershon. Brought to you by Henderson's Pants. And imagine your company's name right here. Find us on the web at SuckatashShow.com or at Suckatash Show on iTunes. And even at Suckatash Show on your smartphone Stitcher app. Follow Suckatash on Twitter at Suckatash Show. Friend Suckatash on Facebook. Email us at marc at succotashshow.com or just pick up that phone and give Succotash a ring at 1-818-921-7212. Succotash is produced and engineered by Joe Paulino at Studio P. Sausalito, home of the hit. Our musical director is Scott Carvey. Our booth assistant is Kenny Durges. Until next time, I'm your loyal booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, reminding you to please... Pass the succotash.